1: Welcome to Episode 250 with my guest, Haydn, uh, and his girlfriend, Rama, who uh, sits in on the interview. Uh, today's episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter the offer code MENTAL at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go there, check it out. We're actually in the process of uh, redesigning it right now. So hopefully the new redesign will will be up there soon. But there's all kinds of stuff. You can join the forum. You can fill out surveys, which I like to read on the podcast. Um, You can donate to the show. You can read blogs, um, all kinds of stuff. So please go check it out. Uh, If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can do that at mentalpod. That's my uh, Twitter handle. Let's get to some surveys. This is Struggle in a... Actually, these are all Struggle in a Sentence surveys. This one was filled out by... Do, 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 do. A woman who calls herself Ninja Mommy, and about her depression, she writes, Stuck in the middle of the ocean at night. Can't see anything or anyone anywhere. That is that is an apt description. This is filled out by a guy who calls himself Eric Han- <clears throat> Hansen. And... Uh, Snapshot from his life, he writes, I love hydrocodone. Uh, I, I guess that's, uh, I think that's the pharmaceutical name for um, Vicodin. Hydrocodone. Uh, I love hydrocodone because it takes the depression away, but it returns when I remember there are no old drug addicts. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself hack into my mind. Uh about her, uh, about being an abuser, she writes, Even though my brother reaches out to me all the time, tells me he loves me, jokes around with me, I can't help but wonder if he also secretly hates me due to what happened many years ago. In a snapshot from her life, she writes, There was a point I was so low in my life and self-deprecation so strong. I struggled with using a pen because I thought I wasn't worth the waste of ink. When I confided in a friend, she said, you're never a waste of ink. God, that's heartbreaking. That is heartbreaking. That's amazing how hard we can be on ourselves. Well, I'm glad your friend said that to you. Um, and, and forgive yourself about whatever happened between you and your brother when you guys were kids. You know, so many people beat themselves up about that. And if you want to get it off your chest, whatever it was that you did to your brother, um, you know, apologize. Apologize. This, I love this person's name, this guy calls himself Pacific North Worst, and about his anxiety, he writes, I'm a tissue paper man in a sandpaper world. Anything I might touch has the power to destroy me. Uh, this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Shadow, about her bulimia. She writes, being overweight and bulimic feels like being a turtle at a rabbit race. And then this one was filled out by a uh, trans person who calls themselves uh, Mad. And they write um, about their eating disorder. Uh, Gaining weight while recovering from my eating disorder is terrifying. It feels like I'm choosing between being a sick man and a healthy woman, and I don't want to be either. My God, somebody does what I've been doing. You're ashamed. You have boundary issues. I feel guilty for hating my mom. I will be high by 4 p.m. You feel helpless. I will be in hell by 4.15
2: Reaching out to the people and sharing
0: with the other people,
2: um, this intimate connection where people do stuff for each other without wanting something in return. Yeah, I just I surrender. And I think I was 28, and that was the first time I ever experienced that, and it was amazing.
1: I'm here with uh, Hayden and uh, his girlfriend Rama, who we've also recorded. Um, And probably would have aired that before this episode, but possibly not. It's also possible that this episode will air first. Um, But we're here in Brooklyn, and um, you guys have been together for nine years. You live together. Um, Yes, nine years.
2: It's going to be nine years in
1: December. You met when you were just kids in uh, Miami. Were you both in high school?
2: We met actually in middle school when we were in eighth grade. Okay. Yeah. I used to tease her a lot, and she hated me.
0: He used to throw spitballs he used to throw spitballs at my face
1: (laughs) (laughs) apparently it worked (laughs) apparently it worked The romantic start uh hayden your uh parents are colombian right um but you were born here in the states no
2: i actually was born in colombia as well until and i grew up there until i was 10 years old and which city in bogota the capital
1: um you were recently diagnosed uh, as bipolar one. That's right. Uh, after a hospital stay. Yes. And it seemingly came out of nowhere in, in terms to, to you and Rama. Uh, but as you look back on it, th- apparently there were warning signs that your mania was was building. Um, when did you first know that? something was, was, was happening to you with, with your emotions that was beginning to feel unmanageable or, or different?
2: Um, I think it was pretty close to the episode, actually. It was, I think, I would say a week and a half, two weeks before the episode, um, that I really felt that the emotional impact of everything was too much to bear. And that's when I was mentioning to you earlier. I think that's around the time when I realized I needed help and I told Rama, I want to see someone.
1: Because you were beginning to have uh, psychosis. Yeah. Well, the psychosis
2: came after the emotional.
0: So I think there's like a series of events. There's like a series of events. So it was November, your sister was getting married, and then right after was Thanksgiving, and then we're going to kick. King- Come back to New York, and then you got hospitalized the week after, and then at the end, um, it was Christmas, so there was like these two months that were yeah. sort of like the peak I would say of your mania, probably your sister's wedding.
2: yeah, I think that's where it really began my sister's wedding, and talking to therapists and and stuff, they usually they usually say that's the, one of the triggers that That sort of blasted my full blown mania uh and um I think it, looking back, I would say that's when everything became sort of like a whirlwind, my sister's wedding, and it was just seeing all my family together and everyone that I loved so close and Being able to exist without drug that I was existing, which I was uh, deeply addicted to
1: marijuana. And I think that's the moment. You shouldn't have admitted it. Listen, listen to what's happening. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's how quick they respond to drug abuse in New York City. And maybe we should close those. (laughs) Well timed, though. Yeah. That's what I heard. Once the.
2: But yeah, and, and so seeing my family sort of exist so, so healthily, and me being so addicted to marijuana, uh, I think that's the first time that I got an inkling of something's wrong here. And so that week when we came back, uh, well, then we came back from my sister's wedding, and then the week following was when the mania really became...
0: Well, you had a mini episode during Thanksgiving.
2: Right. Well, actually, and thinking back, even before that, I had a mini episode of the airplane coming back from Colombia a year before that. Do you remember when I started crying about Sebastián?
0: Yeah. So we were
2: we were in Colombia, and one of the kids, uh, we went to Villa de Leyva, which is this town three hours north of Bogota, and we had a guide in one of a horse in in a horse tour, uh, horseback riding tour. And the guide at the end of the of the of the tour asked us for you know the price of the of the of whatever we had done, and then I gave him uh, an, a really good tip.
0: We gave him like a really generous tip because he was 15. He was a kid. He was like he was a kid, years yeah. Old. And I remember he he went he went to his to his boss, and then his boss took all the money.
2: Right. He just took all the money from the kid and left him without anything. And then the kid came to explain that it was because he had a debt that hadn't had been settled. And it was just, I mean, one of those moments that you just just in, in complete anger with the world of the injustice of this 15-year-old being robbed by his boss. And then we went back and gave him, again, another tip. And then once we were in the airport at, at the in the airplane about to take off,
0: this was like two days later we flew. Right. When we were taking off, then you started crying. I
2: started crying uncontrollably, and I couldn't hold back my tears at all. I mean, I started. So- I it came to sobbing. a moment that I was sobbing, and I think that was the first time I noticed there was something deeply affecting me, and. Now that I think back on it, in hindsight, I realize that it was the mania that had, I mean, and it was like part of my, my disease, which is, you know, the, the overblown emotions. So I think that was the first time that I experienced something firsthand that I could tell, oh, that's, that's bipolar. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and that was how long ago, that episode?
2: That was three two reasons. years, three years.
0: It wasn't last the year before the year before that i think
2: so it's going to be 3 years this november yeah yeah
1: now we've talked a little bit off mike uh about your family and you don't have any trauma uh, or at least haven't spoken about any trauma and rama hasn't is there a trauma in your in your past as a kid N-
2: no no i actually consider myself one of the luckiest persons uh, to ever live because (laughs) I mean it it sounds I'm having that trophy made up for you it should be here by the time we're done and I say that because in contrast to what Rama has gone through and I think through what most people have gone through my childhood was just a dream you know Um, I had the most overprotective parents that anyone can have they live for us for me and my for my sister and I um, so no there 's no trauma that 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 triggered anything that i 've gone through I
0: think the most traumatic experience was probably moving to the states right when you were like nine or ten.
2: yeah, but I think it was the only but it was like you know it's sort of like a natural events. trauma of you know of a big life change that mm-hmm. you know affected me deeply also um coming to a country where no one spoke my language and and you know that that changes you, but other than that, my life has been pretty peachy
1: <laughs> do you ever you know you use the word overprotective do you do you ever and i'm not saying this is a trauma, but um do you ever um, with parents that are overprotective sometimes the the child can um, begin to worry about the parents becoming upset? Um, is that, do you take on other people's kind of uh, emotional states and worry about, you know, want, not wanting them to be upset?
2: Yeah, I think, uh, that's a big part of growing up with parents that are so loving and overly giving. Um, I do, I do, and I think, um, Throughout my life, I've always recognized that my life is a lot better than, for example, my cousin's life that I grew mm-hmm. up with. Um, and I think that always affected me deeply also in saying, like, oh, there's a big injustice in this. And there's a lot of things that are wrong with the world as I as I saw it, even as a child. And I think that did sort of endowed me with this sort of responsibility to look out for others. Um, and I think it gave me a a, God, a savior complex.
0: I think so, too. And I say that because before we started dating, and we, we started dating when we were 19, so it was the first year of college, and we went to high school together, really good friends during, like, junior and senior year in high school, and he was really into this girl, and... Um, She had some, you know, she had some issues, you know, and he felt like he had to be there to help her and be there for her and, quote unquote, save her almost in a way. And... Um, that didn't work out. And then when we started going out, it kind of felt the same because I was a basket. I am, I am a basket case.
1: (laughs) You actually have the license to prove it. You (laughs) just finally, you passed your boards, your basket case boards. You just show up, you show up and you go, I can't do this. I go, you passed. You're certified.
0: (laughs) So he had that, you know, he was extremely protective of me and he constantly, but it wasn't like in a in an overbearing way that's like, "Oh my God, just stop trying to save me." It wasn't <laughs> like that, it was more in a very like loving and and just like concerned way, you know, just kind of trying to open my eyes to the reality, not so much, you know, do this or do that, but just you know bringing in his perspective. And telling me, well, maybe you, you should analyze things from from this side. You know, I'm outside the box, you know, and really trying to help me.
1: And, uh, you know, from what you shared when you opened up uh, to Haydn about the abuse that you had suffered as a kid, um, I mean, his reaction was so touching. You know, as we shared in the episode with you, he, he broke down for for 24 hours was was just crying mourning you know what it what had happened to you which is is so beautiful
0: yeah and in hindsight also part of you know being bipolar in a way like feeling emotions extremely like deeply and um for long periods of time (laughs) (laughs) it's one of the superpowers (laughs) yeah Hayden. Imo- Hayden. unbridled emotion I <laughs> don't really believes like having bipolar is like a bittersweet it's just he has superpowers is there
1: anything better than mania when before mania gets out of control and you embarrass yourself mania is sweet yes it yeah, is. It is. Sweet. It talk is. about it
2: wow well it's just it's this feeling of complete perfect euphoria um there's nothing wrong with you. You're absolutely on top of the world. You know everything. Um, everyone is below you, which is—it's in hindsight, it's a nasty feeling—the uh, arrogance
1: that it that it endows you with. Um, but your brain's moving so fast. You're able to accomplish so many things. Right. And you're so inspired. Yeah, it's.
2: Yeah, and actually, that's a crazy thing that I, the episode was sort of the culmination of my mania. But looking back, you, I realized that, and Rama and I realized that my mania had been going on for four years,
0: ever since we moved here, probably,
2: and even before that, in college, my last year of college, which was the year before we moved here to New York, to New York in 2011. So all of 2010, I was writing plays in a in a in a in so prolific that it was absurd for someone my age. I was writing sixty pages a week non stop uh I wouldn't sleep. Wow, I would just go page after page after page, and you know it was everyone in my family always saw that as oh, he's so talented, you know he's, he's so focused, so he's so driven, and uh, even going back before that uh the times that I would learn guitar, I would just close my you know close the doors of my room and stay there for hours playing guitar and this obsession. With perfecting everything that I was, I put my mind into. But yeah, so I think the the, the mania started the year I graduated college. I was just writing insane amount, insane amounts of work. Then after that, I went on a trip through Europe and I spent almost three months getting drunk every day in every city that I visited, and still managed to get up the next day to see all the sights. Um, so, and, and again, everyone just re- thought that's, oh, that's Hyde, and He's so full of energy. <laughs> you know, he's just, he's just this, he has this angel on top of him. <laughs> and the angel was bipolar. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And then when we got here to New York City. Uh, I was just involved in everything. I was, uh, towards the end, I was involved in about three thea- theater projects, uh, a band project. And two part-time jobs. So I was working full-time while maintaining five other projects on the side. and
0: I don't know when he slept. What what
2: kind of sleep were you getting? I wasn't, actually. Uh, I would sleep maybe four hours uh, on a good day. I would go to sleep at four in the morning, get up at ten usually. So... Um, sometimes i wouldn 't sleep at all, and I think the weed was actually helping me a lot in doing that too um that 's why I became so deeply addicted to it because it was sort of regulating everything that I did. If I was too tired, I would smoke weed, and it was like I had done cocaine really it didn't it didn't it didn't I, weed has i i 've never had the experience of weed dumbing me down it's it was always on, on the other end the contrary it was always lifting me up. Every time I smoked, it was like a surge of energy. Um, Rama would go to sleep, uh, just knocked out, and I would stay the whole night just awake, smoking weed, and doing everything that I had to do. You know, writing again, uh, playing guitar, writing songs, sometimes just
1: mindlessly watching TV. And would you feel that your Body needed rest, or did you feel that you didn't need rest? Because I know a lot of times people with insomnia want, they're tired, but they just can't sleep. Was that your case, or did you just not want to sleep? Well, in the three years here in New York,
2: I was uh, sleeping. I, I never felt that I needed sleep at all. I mean, I just, whatever I slept was fine by me. I never, I, I never thought of going. For something that made me sleep, or going asking a doctor to give me something for sleep or or anything like that, once the mania hit uh, the, the the psychotic episode started that 's when I started feeling my body being drained by all the energy that I had and it was the first time in my life that I experienced sugar that I experienced sugar lows, and that 's the you only thing f- that I feel
1: you experienced what sugar lows. What do you mean when you say sugar
2: lows? I just, it came to a point that I felt my body was running out of energy, like fuel. So I would just go for a Coca-Cola and just drink a whole two liter of Coke. uh, Or coffee. Or coffee. Like
0: take 10 espressos.
2: Wow. Right. And I would just, my body would keep going like that. Then when the psychotic episode started, I did sort of miss sleep because it was like, it was just so overwhelming everything that was going on that i i wished i could sleep but i didn't it was just that was the moment that not for a single second i would get a uh and i you know wow yeah
0: i think it's funny because when we were in college for example and we went to different schools so he had to drive 6 hours to see me and every time he would come um he would just sleep he would sleep a lot, actually. And even before that, he would sleep a lot. He would go through, like, these... And in hindsight, of course, through these sort of, you know, days that he would just sleep a lot, like, weeks. He would just sleep very well and nap during the day and constantly be sleepy. We watch a movie and he will fall asleep. To all of a sudden being this guy who just could stay awake and like the whole night and then go do a show at the theater and come back home and take like maybe sleep two hours and then go
1: back to work the next morning. Do you remember those periods when you were just talking about when you were sleeping a lot, did you feel depressed?
2: I did actually, but in, and in hindsight it's, it's all depression. And that's another thing that was one of the shocking things about finding out that I was bipolar one, is realizing that all those moments in my life when I had slept a lot was just depression being manifested through my you know, through my sleeping p- pattern, and I do. I, and and and, and, the, and if and if I if, if I look back, I realize that every time I was sleeping a lot, it was just uh, a very sad. Period of my life, like Rama was mentioning, when this girl that I tried to save uh sort Poor of cheated uncle. on me, I I slept day in and day out, and my parents always saw that as healthy. Actually, <laughs> my mom always believes that sleep is a good thing, so she would always be like, you know, she's sleeping, so he's resting, he's doing well. I mean, he's just maybe a little bit sad, but he's sleeping a lot. So that's and a teenagers good thing. do sleep a lot, <laughs> right? Right, yeah. So that's another thing that was uh, misleading. It was that teenagers do sleep a lot. But then I would go through moments of of, of euphoria, of mania, where I would drive to see Rama six hours every but week. But you would
0: do it in four.
2: Right, I would do it in four. I, I actually did a, a six-hour trip one time in three hours and a half. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs>
0: He does have an angel <laughs> that looks after him because he's the amount of tickets he's gotten for speeding is just insane
2: yeah and and I look back and I do thank the universe for not dying in one of those. I mean, I would hit the max speed on my car like it would just reach the one hundred and forty, and my car would go to one hundred and sixty, but one forty was where the, it would cap out cap off. And, like, there's a chip in the car that doesn't allow you to go uh, faster than that. But if I. You're the person
1: that's made for. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) I used to wonder, who is is going over 140? Turns out it's Titan. Yes. Yeah. Bipolar. Yeah.
0: So, one thing that we talked about in therapy, which was really interesting um, a few weeks ago, actually, was. You know maybe we wouldn't have been together if hayden didn't have this like manic episodes or just went through these periods of mania because i remember this is before we even started dating and when i told his parents about the story they were so shocked they were just like oh my god hayden so apparently they they so i live in i used to live in gainesville and hide in Miami. And Orlando is like four hours away from Miami and two hours, two and a half hours from Gainesville.
2: So it was a six-hour trip from Miami to Gainesville.
0: Yes. So they were in Orlando for a vacation. And we had fought over the phone. We were not dating. Um, and I went to sleep. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, I hear a knock on my door. And he had taken the car from his mother told told them that that i was gonna
2: meet a friend in downtown disney which is like 10 minutes from where we were staying
0: and he drove two and a half hours to see me at two o'clock in the morning he laid next to me for 30 minutes like hugged me kissed me and then drove back two and a half hours and got got to the hotel like at 5 a.m or something And then you had to get up early in the morning. At
2: seven in the morning to go to the parks in Orlando. <laughs> so and that's one of the things that, that that my our therapist made us realize it's he was like, crap, if you hadn't been for your mania, you guys wouldn't even be together <laughs> because who else is crazy enough to drive six hours every week to go see you, you know, and, and, and just establish this relationship. And I think looking back it is true. Um, i mean i don't want to say i was pulling the weight in the relationship at that time i mean
0: clearly you just said it so
2: (laughs) (laughs) but it was it was sort of like my obsession with being in love with drama that that pushed things forward at that that moment in time
0: yeah
1: let's let's talk about the the episode that got you hospitalized and then the support around it especially from rama's point of view and how your parents also stepped in and 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 supported you, because Rama told me before you and I got together how incredibly supportive um your parents were once they understood that this is what you were up against, you know what they yeah. what they did so w- walk us walk us through that.
2: yeah, so my sister's wedding ended. um I came back, I think it was in a weekday. And I, the moment I la- I right before I left Miami, I had bought like six packs of cigarettes, because they're so cheap. That's what I told myself. Um, they were so cheap they're in Miami price. Uh, as opposed to in New York. So I bought like six packs of cigarettes, and then I forgot them all. I for- that that night, I that morning, we got up to go to the to the airport, and I left my book bag. And I remember telling Rama and the airplane saying, "Like fuck, you know, see, see, that's what happens when I'm not stoned." You see, my mind is somewhere else when I'm that high. Like I can't even function when I'm that stoned. Um, And then I landed and I realized I was so deeply addicted to five things, which I kept saying during my mania. It was like one of the things that I kept repeating over and over. I'm addicted to five things. Caffeine, weed, cigarettes, alcohol, and high fructose corn syrup. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. well you're officially american yes <laughs> you're welcome <laughs> and, and 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 then realizing that was the moment i uh, uh, was a moment of realization for me It was a breakthrough saying wow like i'm so addicted to so many substances and that's how i've been existing for the past four years here in new york city um and then i started i told myself i'm gonna quit quit weed i'm, I'm gonna stop smoking so that night uh, we got home. We got. I, I got stoned, like I, I usually did. But I. But I, I was saying to myself, you know, this is sort of like the process. I gotta weed it out little by little. <laughs> and then I kept pushing myself not to smoke, but obviously I kept smoking just as much yes. as I had been because uh, I couldn't hold myself. But then, during that, when that when the media started building up, I became convinced that everything that was going on was happening because I was trying to
1: quit weed, and I kept telling everyone that, that. makes kind of sense in your convoluted mind right. at that point. I think anybody probably would have believed that if that was happening to them, because that's the biggest thing that had changed. Right, right. And 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 it was I was just a hundred percent sure
2: that everything that was going on was happening because I was trying to to quit. And then the nights just became longer and longer. That's when I, I, I couldn't get a, sing, a single second of sleep. Um, the first sign of the psychotic episode was when I heard the bells to that Metallica song, For Whom the Bell Tolls, every time the sunset would come about. I would hear just boom, boom and i just felt oh shit come night is coming through and i'm not gonna get a single second of sleep
0: and i remember that we our bed we need to like switch our bed because we have like an old mattress so what we said is like okay we'll we'll move to the living room where we have this sofa bed and I was like, okay, let's just like move here so you can sleep, right? Because he kept on saying that he couldn't sleep, and I was like, okay, if you feel more comfortable, we can we can just sleep here. And it just became creepier and creepier every night. And we got here, I think Friday or Saturday, and we hospitalized you on a Tuesday. So all those days leading up to Tuesday, we were
2: sleeping in the living room.
0: We were sleeping in the living yeah, room. Well,
2: you were sleeping in the living room. Yeah. I was just next to you trying to sleep uh, for moments of time. Then when I couldn't sleep, I would just get up and start doing something else. Until it became just a nightmare when I started hallucinating and seeing things that weren't there. Um, so that it came to a point where I was seeing Dante's Inferno in front of me. I would just see demons walking all around our apartment. And I kept telling Rama what I was seeing <laughs> and obviously she was freaking the fuck out while that was happening. You didn't get turned but, on by that Rama? <laughs> A lot of people that's an aphrodisiac. <laughs> and what it was, it was my mind just throwing everything that I had like ever read. I, I started living through all of Edgar Allan Poe's stories. I started seeing uh ravens, um I would hear like guillotines it was just like everything coming to life inside my head and and i was seeing it in my in my apartment until i think the the rock bottom of that of those of that psychotic episode was me having my eyes completely open but not seeing anything but dark corridors and le- and doors leading to memories and i knew that if i crossed one of those doors i was going to lose my mind I was gonna just die that's how I felt I felt like um, if I if I walk through one of
1: those doors it's my death I knew that do you think and forgive me if I sound like a cliche of somebody trying to make something out of nothing but do you think that there is some trauma in your childhood that you've buried that subconsciously you you were getting close to uncovering and that was your brains way of trying to protect yourself yeah, I mean,
2: I've spoken about that in therapy, and um, I don't know, I think, uh, uh, but other than the moving here, I could never finger like pinpoint anything else, but I, I do think, like, it might have been something in my past that was sort of, like, pushing to get through. Yeah. Um, you,
0: d- you do talk, and you did talk about this during your episode, actually seeing that little girl that was your friend...
2: Oh, right. Well, actually, she that's... Was dead? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I had a friend when I was... I mean, and all, again, all of my trauma always was normalized uh, as part of life. But obviously, I do have like very sad moments in my life. And I think one of the darkest uh, points in my childhood, maybe the darkest moment in my childhood, is when a friend I had when I was seven years old died. Uh, she died of... Uh, septic arthritis, I think it's the name of, uh, the disease that locks itself to a joint and then it spreads. But by the time they found it in her, it had spread to her brain. So she she became brain dead within like a week. And my parents, for some reason, took me to the funeral and I saw the body in the casket.
0: Open casket.
2: Open casket. Um, And I think that was uh, one of the things that was sort of torturing me during that time as well because to this day it's the one thing that still scares me i'm not afraid of the dark i'm not afraid of spiders i'm not afraid of stuff like that but every time i think of her body in the casket mm-hmm. it's just this fear takes over me
1: you know i had something similar happen to me when i was in second grade the girl who sat in front of me um, she used to lean her head back and her hair would get on my pencil holder, and I would complain to the teacher, and teacher would tell me to quit being a baby. And I remember standing in line for the bus behind her, and I remember exactly what her winter hat looked like, and I remember thinking to myself, "I wish you were dead." And then shortly thereafter, she went through the windshield of a car and died. Oh wow! And I remember, I remember her funeral. It was this little tiny casket. And I remember they were playing that bird song to everything, turn, turn, turn. And whenever I hear that song, and probably for 10 years after that happened, any time I would hear her name, it would feel like a jolt of electricity had gone through me. And it was so... It was much scarier than any movie I'd ever seen. It was much scarier than any boogeyman under your bed. It it was... Um, so I... I, I think I know that I didn't. Fortunately, I didn't have to see her body, but um, death is a heavy fucking thing for a yeah. for a kid. The first time they realize, yeah.
2: And I think as loving and as great as my parents were, I think that was like somewhere somewhere where they sort of failed in treating me. Um, I obviously needed a psychologist at that point moment in life, and I never saw one. So I think that's one. And and, and did did, you
1: did you kind of uh, freak out visibly for your parents to know what was going on? Yeah,
2: I couldn't be by myself at all. I Mm -hmm. couldn't even. uh, We lived in a three story house, and I couldn't go to the second floor by myself in the middle of the day during that time. I was so afraid. I couldn't sleep by myself. I had to sleep with my parents. Um, I would keep talking about her. I had dreams with her. Um, yeah, I think my parents were, vis- I mean, it was visible to my parents that I was traumatized.
1: Yeah. Would you, uh, have a visceral reaction if you heard her name mentioned? Yeah. Yeah, it would. Yeah. Because that was for me. If, if somebody mentioned, oh, you remember such and such, I don't even like saying her name to this day. Um, but if some people would say her name, I would feel like my skin shudder. Yeah. Um, so did you was it something that gradually went away? Is there? Are, are, is there still a part of it in, Inside you or do you think there's I? Think it's still there. I think uh,
2: it's one of those things that has like scarred me for life. Um, I, I I Don't believe in ghosts, but every time I'm by myself this inkling of an idea comes through and I'm like Catalina That was her name and I just freak out. I start looking over my shoulder um, yeah, it's it's something that I think I'm going to live with for the rest of my life. Yeah.
0: And you talked a lot about it during the episode, you know.
1: What did you say yeah. during the episode?
0: I don't know if you remember, but you just kept revisiting the memory and the open casket and how I saw her and how scary it was. Um, on top of like the five things that you were addicted to. <laughs> And the demons that were walking around our apartment. And the bells. And the bells. And when he would say, I, look, I can hear them right now, I was just freaking out. I'm like, okay, just take deep breaths. It's okay. You know, it's fine. And then you were telling Paul earlier how it got really bad that you just went into the fetal position.
2: Yeah, I mean during the psychotic episode uh, when when the when the co- corridors with the with the doors started happening it just came to a point that it was so incredibly painful to exist in that place that I kept thinking I'm going to jump out of the of the window. I need to do something to end this. And the only thing holding me back from doing that was Rama, obviously cuz she was here in the apartment. So I really like The oh, thought the thought of her or her physically I think her physically holding me at some point. I was holding point.
0: him... At some point, I was crying. Like, Hyden, you're scaring me. Should I call someone? Please tell me. And then he would snap back and be like, Rama, it's fine. I'm here. Don't worry. I'm here. I'm okay. And like, put his arms around me and say, No, 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 no. It's just, it's all in my mind. Don't worry. Don't worry. It's just because I'm, you know, trying to quit weed.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Now, are you able to recollect with clarity uh, this as well? Uh,
2: it's. I have like very vivid memories. The chronology of everything is really messed up. Um, it's 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 really really messed up. Like those the, that month and a half that I was in that hypermania, I can't really sort of piece together the time frame. But I do have like the very vivid memories of what I was going through. Around that time, it was also it was just such a weird exploration of who I was. It was just such an absolute realization of the person I was. Because another thing I realized at the time is how uh, obsessively compulsive I was. Um, and that's another thing that I began obsessing about, about not being obsessive, <laughs>
0: yeah. I don't how that work be, out. I don't want to, I don't want to be obsessive anymore. I'm going to stop all my um, rituals. rituals.
2: So I, I kept saying like, because every time I rolled a joint, I had a certain way of doing it. So I kept saying, I'm going to roll it like Gabriel, my best friend, because he knows how to roll joints and I know how to roll joints. But every time I roll a joint, I'm doing my rituals. So in my head, I was just going through Gabriel's process of rolling a joint. Um, stuff like that. I couldn't find a single lighter in my house. There's about ten lighters at that point in my house, and I couldn't find a single one because I didn't have the ritual that would take me to the lighter. What was the ritual to take you to the lighter? I had like I would always put them in in, in, in the in a in a, a little basket by by our door, or where the where the there was a box that I had full of all my paraphernalia. <laughs> <laughs> and I would keep all the lighters there. And since I, I wasn't using that box anymore, I had no idea where all the lighters were. Uh, there was another place by a bookcase where I would keep all the extra paraphernalia that I, that I didn't use constantly. <laughs> and that had also gone out the window because I wasn't fixing it. Um, And and a lot of things I couldn't remember, even. I I couldn't, like, recall where I would put stuff. Like, one time I called drama freaking out to help me find my glasses over FaceTime.
0: He FaceTimed me at work telling me, please help me find my glasses. And he was just through FaceTime. And I was like, okay, well, go around the room. Go around the room. And he couldn't find his glasses. And, of course, I couldn't find the glasses for him because I'm not there. (laughs) And I'm just trying to you know, be like, Okay, it's okay, you're gonna find him. Don't worry. Did you look here? Did you look there? You know, just trying to calm him down. But once he's up high, there nothing can bring him down. He's just yeah. irritable, you know, he's just annoyed, he's just, you know, on edge. Um, so on top of everything, there's these other things, you know. Well,
1: let's talk about scoot over to the light uh, the mic a little bit more, Rama, and I want to hear from you what it's like being the loved one of somebody that's going through this. What's going on inside you emotionally? What are you fe- feeling and thinking?
0: Oh man, I remember for his sister's wedding, he didn't sleep. He had gone like two days without sleeping and he was supposed to stand by by the groom's side, and I was freaking out. And I was like, something is wrong, and I couldn't pinpoint it. And then, I don't know if it was a few days before that. Also, my timeline is all screwed up because so much was going on. Um, I think a few days before that, we were lying in bed, and he just like started crying, saying how... I have all these emotions for all these people who love me. I love you, I love my family, and I've let everybody down and I just didn't understand what he meant. you know i you know I knew that he was smoking a lot and but I also knew that- that wasn't the weed because weed doesn't just doesn't do that to you I mean, um. And then when the episode happened, those few days that we were just in... We didn't leave this apartment, actually. I think we left... You left a few times just to go downstairs and smoke. And I was... I
2: would leave a lot downstairs to smoke. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But we were just here. Yeah. I just... I didn't know what to do. I was completely lost. Because I didn't want to call his family and tell him... Tell them, like, there's something going on and... I'm not sure what it is, but he's smoking a lot of weed because his family is very conservative in that side, and they they wouldn't understand, and they would probably go directly to that, like, oh, it's the weed, which I knew it wasn't. Um, So once he got hospitalized, when we took him that first night, it was a Tuesday night, so it was four nights of this craziness pretty much him saying that he was gonna jump out the window or that he was gonna pack his shit and go see his sister if I wasn't if I wasn't there. You kept on saying that. Um
1: and what did you feel in those
0: I felt completely lost because he was my rock. I never had to take care of him. Ever. He was always so collected And knew exactly what he was doing. And it's like what he was saying. He was almost, no, not almost. He was pretty arrogant, you know. He's like very self-confident. He has that, you know. He knows everything. He knows exactly how he's feeling. He knows exactly what's going to happen next. And he gave me that sense of security. And once that started falling apart, I just, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know who to turn to. Because I would turn to him all the time. I would lean on him. And so when we took him to the hospital that night, I remember I came back home and I just, I didn't sleep. I just cried and cried and cried. And, and I just kept on telling myself, like, is he going to come back to normal what did something snap in his head? Is is this it? Like, is this how he's gonna be? Is this
1: our new normal? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Is this my new normal? Like, I I don't know. I have no idea. And
1: not And he, once, hadn't, and he been, hadn't been diagnosed.
0: No, he hadn't with been diagnosed. Yet. When they took him into the psych ward, the doctor came out and says, "Is there any history of schizophrenia?" or bipolar disorder in his family. And I said, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. But once he said schizophrenia, I think I, I lost it. That's when I just couldn't stop crying because he was hallucinating. He was giving me very vivid images and that's what I was most scared of. But when I came home, I just, I was like, this is it. This is the rest of my life. It's unpredictable. And I don't know if I'm gonna have, if I'm gonna get him back. I have no idea. And I think that's the scariest thing to know someone for so long and then all of a sudden everything is just upside down and not have anyone to kind of lean on. It was, I don't think anybody understood that I knew something was wrong in his mind. I think everybody just at first glance everybody thought it was just cause he was smoking. But I knew that I knew it was something that snapped.
1: So let's go back to um Hyden and and talk about the the hospital visit and what you remember.
2: Oh wow well that's the nightmare two of my experience with the mania. Um I remember that night that they took me to the hospital, My be- one of my best friends, Jose, was here at home, and my cousin that had come from Costa Rica was here also, and they, they kept asking me, what's going to make you feel better? And I would say, let me take a rip from a ball. Let me just... <laughs> let me- and then they would tell me no you just did that and and you're not better and i would be like what do you mean i just did that i don't even remember doing that i'm trying to quit you know (laughs) i'm trying to quit i'm trying not to smoke weed what do you mean i just did that
0: and then he would tell the same stories over and over again and then he would get up from where he was sitting and pace around the house and sit back down and then say the same thing again and then get up around the house sit say the same thing again it was like a cycle
1: so this was before you were in the, in the hospital that
2: was right before and then so because I was doing the cyclical thing that Rama was just saying
0: I was not here so he was just with my friend Jose and his cousin I, I was at a work function and I got home at 9pm and I saw this and I freaked out because I saw him do it twice and I looked at Jose and I was like what do we do? Should we call nine one one? Should we do it? Do you want to go to the hospital? And he was like, no no, 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 no. Okay, 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 okay. No no, 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 You just kept on going back and forth. Yeah. Do you remember?
2: I don't remember being at uh, uh, saying yes, yes, and no, going back and forth. I remember you guys mentioning the hospital, and I was like, No no of course not I'm trying to quit weed what are you doing to me you're, 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 this is insane like you know you're going to take me to the hospital I'm just trying to quit weed that's all that's happening here and I remember telling Jose he's an engineer telling him that's why I brought you here tonight man because you're a man of science you know what's going on you know what's going on with me and this is not something to take someone to the hospital for <laughs> until I guess against my will they called the hospital
1: uh, they called 911
0: I called your sister And then...
1: Whose number starts with 911.
0: And then we decided to call the hospital, but you did agree to go. You did. Yeah,
1: once the paramedics
2: got here, they were like very nice. And that's the one thing I remember being nice about the hospital uh, experience was the paramedics telling me, we're here to help you. Uh, We're going to take you somewhere where they're going to try to figure out what's going on with you. You you can just be calm. Nothing's going to happen. And I was like, sure. So I got ready. I don't remember how, cause I was. Pro- I don't even know what I was wearing then.
0: We helped you get ready. We took. We got your shoes, your clothes. You know. they,
2: did
1: they put you on a gurney?
2: No, or they let you walk down. No, they you? let me walk down with them. Then they took me into the ambulance, and while I was going while I was going into the ambulance, I remember thinking, Gabriel, which is my best friend here in New York, is going to fuck everyone up that's here. Like um, He's going to get so that. pissed with he everyone here that. because I'm trying to quit weed, and they're taking me to a fucking hospital. <laughs> and I kept saying that over and over again, like, Gabriel's going to be so pissed, man. Gabriel's going to be so fucking pissed that you guys are doing this to me. And he couldn't be there because he was working on a theater piece at that time. And so we get to the hospital, and I remember being in in in, the, in a stretcher, and seeing Jose, my cousin, and Rama in front of me, like just staring at me, like what's going on with this person. And then I go up to Rama, and you know, Rama comes up to me, and I tell her, "Listen, I'm completely blank-minded. Ma my, my, I I have reset it myself. I can't remember anything." That has happened in the past three years in New York City. All I can remember is you, Jose, my cousin, Gabriel, and Alex, another friend. Everything else that had to do with New York City was wiped out of my mind.
0: And then you kept on telling me, I want you to stage manage me right now.
2: <laughs> yeah, so she, she told me, like, you got to get up. You got to get up and get dressed. You got to put this, the, the, the hospital clothes on. And, 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 and I told her, pretend I'm in a play and you're stage managing me. <laughs> Martin Balmaceda, one of the directors I worked with, and stage manage me. Tell me exactly what it is that I have to do, because that was the only way I could find for my for my brain to function. Because I was so in in such a, a moment, in such a like state of complete blankness. It was so weird. It, I remember thinking it at at the time. I was like at the moment. I felt like a computer that had been completely.
1: Reboot it. How long were those memories erased for before they came back? I would say like a week. Yeah,
2: that had been terrifying. Yeah, it was. It was. It was. I mean, it was like being somewhere where you. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know where I was. And I remember thinking, like, am I
1: going to ever get this back? And was that before they administered any drugs to you or after they yeah, administered? That was before. That was before yeah. they administered anything to me.
0: Because they took him to the ER. So first they took him to the ER, and he kept on saying. It's not like he would say, stage manage me. And then stay quiet. He would say, stage manage me, okay? And I'd be like, yes, okay, so take off your shoes. Rama, you, you understand that you have to stage manage me, right? You understand, <laughs> right? Like my, my my mind is blank. And he would just repeat himself over and over and over again. And we would take shifts. So I would stay with you a little bit. And then Jose would come And you guys...
1: It's almost like a drunk person. That's what a... uh, Like a person who's in a blackout drunk. Yeah. That's what they... Like my... The the one time I was around my dad where he was visibly drunk, he just kept repeating himself. He just kept repeating himself and it was so frustrating.
0: And he, he would tell Jose, Jose, remember? And then he would just, like, come up with these memories from college. And he would tell him, that's all I remember. I remember our memories from college. But I don't remember anything else. But I remember you. And then he would switch to his cousin. And he will be like, remember when we were kids? And then he would just come up with these memories when they were children.
2: And at the same time while I was going through this, it was, like, this 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 feeling that I had just taken, like, five lines of cocaine like i felt so good about everything and i kept telling everyone like oh my god weed is the most amazing drug in the world look what it did to me i've got to i've gotten to a point where i'm like in complete peace with everything it's completely blank and everything that i have left in me it's good memories i don't have any terrible thing that i could remember everything that is inside of me in my brain wow. it's goodness nothing else <laughs>
0: wow except that there was an old lady who was next to you who kept on moaning and then you kept on saying somebody please take me out of here somebody please take me out of here and then because she was reminding you of catalina yeah rama i can't i can't take i can't like she sounds like she's gonna die you would say right? that he would say that so loud where the lady was like they were separated by a curtain and her son was right there oh. and he was, I
2: kept screaming like someone please take me out of this and I would keep telling Jose because the th- I had three memories triggered by that screaming it was Catalina my friend that had passed away Jose's dad had gone through something that I had helped them in and it was just this horrible brain aneurysm and then my mom being hospitalized for uh, an appendix and I just kept saying, that's the only three things I can think of. Please take me out of here. Please, someone just stop this lady from screaming. Please, someone, someone, until the point got, got to a point that I was standing on the stretcher, screaming at everyone in the hospital, telling them, you gotta stop this. You gotta stop this. I can't take this anymore.
1: This lady's gonna drive me crazy. You know how to take center stage. <laughs> you know. Yeah. You know.
0: And the crazy thing is that he was still at der. The they They were just processing him to take him to the psych ward. Um, so that lasted for a good hour, hour and a half maybe. And then they took him up. And then who took him up was a cop.
2: A cop. And I kept telling everyone, I hate cops. Please don't let me. I kept telling Jose, don't let me look at that cop. I'm going to fucking kill him. I'm going to fucking kill that cop. Oh the God. cop
0: is right there. <laughs> He could hear him. And I remember apologizing to the cop constantly. Like, I'm so sorry. He doesn't mean it. Like, I swear he doesn't mean
1: it. <laughs> and how would the cop react?
0: He, I guess he's just so used to it. I think that's yeah. his job. He takes patients to the psych ward. <laughs> I think he's used to it.
2: Yeah. And then I remember that's when the most terrible part of, I think, of this episode started. Because I remember just taking off my promise ring. And giving it to a cop and telling him, give this to Rama Isa Ibrahim. Give this to Rama Isa Ibrahim. That's my fiance. I need you to give this to her. And that's the only thing I could remember of, like, getting into it. Uh, It's not the only thing I could remember. It's the one thing that I was very clear about in that moment. You know what? Let's back up because
1: Rama, I don't think, wants her last name. We're fine? Okay.
2: All right. Um, And then... I, I give the ring, uh, the ring to the cop, and then from one moment other, from one moment, to, from one moment to another, I'm just pushed into this dark corridor. And it was literally like, or in your literally, mind. literally. And then that's when I was like, "Holy shit, I don't even know where I am. I don't know what just happened. Everything was just such a blur. The only thing that I could see was like these this two ladies behind a counter, and I would go up to them and talk to them, and they would ignore me completely, like I was a ghost like I was a fucking complete leap invisible they would just ignore me and was this actually happening or were you imagining this happening? I think that was actually happening at the psych with and I mean I guess I mean it's so it's maybe so it's exaggerated, modeled with, maybe
0: a little bit yeah maybe.
2: I mean oh I, I remember thinking I don't know if if you've ever seen Twilight Zone with this episode called the eye of the beholder <laughs> Where they're in this hospital trying to cure people from ugliness. I remember being in that episode. That's how I felt. I was just in this psych ward where it was complete darkness. The only thing I could see is two people behind a counter, and they were just ignoring me. And I kept going up to them and asking them, what's going on? Where am I? Where should I go? What should I do? And I'm pretty sure that they, because that lasted. I was there for two days?
0: Two nights, yeah.
2: I was there for two nights, and that was their M.O., it was just ignore him. I mean, obviously, there's a bunch of crazy people in this, in this psych ward <laughs> that are trying to get answers. And I'm one more. And they're not going to sit with me and try, start explaining what's going on. They're just ignoring me completely. And then one nurse came up to me and told me, this is what's going to happen. In a little bit, you're going to get sat down with a psychiatrist. And they're going to analyze your state. And then they're going to see what happens next. So you got to stay calm. And I just kept pacing through the corridors just pacing, pacing, back and forth, pacing, back and forth.
0: And you kept on saying you had Asperger's.
2: And I kept saying I had Asperger's, yes. That's the other obsession that came about around that time. But at, at that moment, it was just a, a Even though of, you don't have Asperger's? Yet, no, but, not okay. at all. No. <laughs> not one bit. Um, but at that moment, it became sort of a defense mechanism because I was just telling everyone, I have Asperger's and you don't know how you're treating me. I don't understand why you guys don't know how to treat someone. Um with my condition. So the the psychiatrist came in and and started talking to me and asking me what was going on and I remember trying to be calm because I was trying to act calm that was my MO also I was like I need to act a certain way. And I couldn't, I couldn't just, I couldn't even stay seated down. I was just getting up, pacing while I was telling her everything that was going on. And I'm just like, and I think I have Asperger's and that's why I'm here. I was just trying to quit weed and this is what happened. Um, <laughs> and then she looked at me in the eye and she was like, I want to observe you for another day. So you're going to stay here. And that was like a death sentence to me because I was like, fuck, I'm going to be here for another who knows how long, and then they tell me, you go to this room, uh, go to this room, that's where your bed is, and I walk into that room, and it was just this smell, this pungent smell of homeless people, I mean, like, you know, I mean, I, I my heart is with them, really, because it's people that suffer for so much, but it was just, I couldn't be in that room, I was just like, you know, I gagged the moment I walk in, so I get out, and I keep pacing around the corridors, keep pacing around the corridors, until... About five nurses, one with a needle and two cops, come come up to me and tell me, we're going to put you to sleep. And I was like, no. Are you seriously? I'm trying to quit weed. I'm trying to get (laughs) off drugs, and you're going to give me another drug. That's what I kept telling them. I was like, you people are crazy. I mean, you're going to give a drug addict another drug. Um, And then it it was either let let them inject me with whatever they were going to inject me or, you know, fight them. Basically, and, and and then get injected, right? And then get injected. So <laughs> I just gave in and let them inject me, and that was the first time I slept for like three weeks. And I remember it was just a matter of seconds for me to like just pass out, and then I wake up in the morning, or whatever it was, and I got up again, started pacing. <laughs> Again, telling them, and I remember being at the psych ward and just thinking, like everyone here thinks I'm mad. So whenever I would see some nurse that was in like a rut- a routine nurse, someone that was just passing by, I would stop them and tell them, "Listen, I gotta tell you something. Everyone here thinks I'm crazy, and they think that I'm here for something else. But all I was trying to do is quit weed. So I need you to." Listen to me as another human being who's sane and understand that I'm here for the wrong reasons. I have Asperger's and they're keeping me here against my will. <laughs> oh my uh, and then I realized that the whole time there was a pay phone at the at the psych ward and I could call collect. So I started calling my mom, my sister, my dad. I think I called everyone, everyone's number that I could remember for my family, oh, I but called. I, I, but I didn't call you because I didn't remember your phone number. And my sister is a huge Twilight Zone fan, just like me. So I would tell her, you know that episode where they're trying to cure people from ugliness? That's what I'm living right now, Gina Marcela. You got to come and get me out of here, I'm dying. And then I think that's when my sister started pushing for my family to take me out, right?
0: So on the other side, what was happening? So we we dropped him off and I think it's kind of crazy that you can't see them like I never knew that they just locked the door and I can't see him and I can only see him if they discharge him.
1: What would that feel like?
0: It was terrifying because then you start second guessing yourself like did I make the right call? You know what was he is he supposed to be in there? Is he supposed to be in there? Maybe he's not. Maybe he really is just the weed. You start second-guessing. You don't know if, you know. And so I came home. I called his parents. I told his mother. She flew the next day. She was there. She was here. And they called me from the hospital. And they said, well, we don't know what he has. We know that he is hypermanic. Um. If I discharge him right now, he's going to be exactly how you left him. Can you care for him exactly how you left him? And I, listening to that, I was just like, no, I, I can't care for him the way that he was. He was, dude, nobody could care for him the way he was acting. And I said, no, I don't. I second guess myself again. I was like, I don't know. <sighs> I mean, maybe I. It, I don't, I don't know. She's like, okay, I'm going to keep him another night. We're going to observe. So that's when he stayed a second night. And so the third, the third day we went there to see him, and they wouldn't let us see him. They wouldn't let us see him. And his mother was just like, I just want to see him. I will know if he's okay if I see him. And I was ready to make the call of just take him impatient. To the site to the psych ward you know and treat him and once he's in there we don't know how long it will take for him to come out so
1: you were still in the evaluation
0: yeah he was area. still in the evaluation he wasn't like admitted okay so the doctor started asking me do you want to admit him and i was ready i was like yes you know because i don't know what he has and I know he's a smart guy. I know the second that a psychiatrist would see him and talk to him in two or three days, they would know what he had and he would come out. Like I had hopes for that. Like I knew that's what was going to happen in my head. But then once his mother found out that there was THC in his system, um, she freaked out and she's, she said, well, this is this is just drugs. This is all it is. I want to see my son. So we're going to discharge him. And I had, you know, at that point, I didn't have a say. So they discharged him. And he kept on calling her and calling his sister and, and saying how horrible it was in there. And I knew. I'm like, I'm sure it's horrible in there. But mm-hmm. when you're admitted, it won't be so bad. They explained to us it was going to be a floor with 21 other people who have similar Disorders that he has, he would see a psychiatrist, there would be family therapy, um, all this stuff. They said, no, that's it. We're going to take him out. So we took him out. We discharged him and they gave him a little bit of olanzapine to give it to him at night so he would sleep. And he came out of that hospital the same way that we had taking him in, except that he was irritable and annoyed and really ready to punch someone.
1: <laughs> and still addicted to five things. Yes. Still addicted to and, five things. And
0: still thinking that he had Asperger's.
1: <laughs> so what was the, the turning point? Because I think we got a good picture now of the, the unmanageability of the, of the mania. What turned things around? When did when did help finally break through for you, and what did that look like?
2: I think um, well, when I got out of the hospital, I was hospitalized. Again. I mean, I was taken to the hospital again um,
0: two days later by
2: cops that time. So it, that that was sort of like a wake up call to say like, okay, there's there's something really wrong with me, and I need to start figuring what, out. What, what was it. the
1: reason the cops were called?
2: Well, they called... We we, called
0: 911 to get him in a When I
2: got out of the hospital, the first thing I did was I went to shower and took a bowl Mm -hmm. with me and just (laughs) smoked it in the bathroom. Um, Then Rama realized that and she was like, what are you doing? And I was like, that's the only thing keeping me fine, Rama. I have Asperger's now. Um, I need to take care of myself and this is the only thing that's going to help me. And and then that night, we got into a fight about me smoking weed. And I started punching myself and just walking around the house telling everyone, like, I need this. You don't understand. And that's when they called the he ambulance. He became
0: again. a little violent, but towards himself. Of course, he was okay. never going to hit any of us. But once he did that to himself, I was just, I can't control this. So I told his mother, I need to call 911 again. And we did. And since this was a call in the same week... Then the cops had to come and had to handcuff him, which, they handcuffed was, me into which was ridiculous. There's, there's, such, there's something so fucked up about this system and the way we treat people with mental like, illness. It's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, he's freaking out and somebody needed to fucking handcuff him. Are you no. shitting me? Nobody could calm him down. And, you know, this cop, like, walked in the house. I didn't invite him. I told him, you can't come in because he doesn't like cops. I don't want you inside my house until the paramedics come in. And at some point, he just invited himself in, started talking to him and asked him if he has, if he has any weapons in the house. And I'm like, listen, he's just manic. There's, there's mm-hmm. nothing wrong here. He's just ill.
2: Trying to quit weed. <laughs> With Asperger's. <laughs>
0: I think the point is, he got himself discharged because he's very smart and he played the doctors in the ER. The first time? The second time. The second oh,
2: you did it, it again? The well, the second time I was taken to the ER, I was there waiting, and I knew exactly what the procedure was going so to be.
0: So I the told ward.
2: everyone, like, I, I didn't let anyone of my family in, and I just let my cousin in. And I was having such a panic attack that I couldn't breathe. So my cousin had to sit with me and tell me, okay, do this. Take a deep breath in. Let it out. Take a deep breath in. And then he was coaching me how to breathe. Once the doctor came in, I was just like acting completely normal, saying, I just had a little manic episode. And I don't know why they brought me here. I really don't understand what's happening. I just, you know, had a little freak out because I'm trying to quit weed. And I think I have Asperger's doctor. And then the doctor <laughs> was like, okay, yeah, you seem p- perfectly fine. You're out.
0: They, discharge they discharged him. me, And it was he's so smart. He said that I was the ex-girlfriend who was crazy. So he did didn't want me in. Oh my God. And he said his mother was just driving him nuts, so he didn't want her in. So it, I couldn't believe this guy. What did you who feel? Is, what who did is you this f- guy? feel
1: when he just turned around and bullshitted his way out?
0: I was like, motherfucker. <laughs> Honestly, what a manipulator. And I knew, I knew it was a symptom of his illness. I knew then, I was like, this is, he's ill. Because what kind of. After all these years he wouldn't let his mother and me telling the lady at the front I'm his ex-girlfriend. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> so so what turned things around?
2: So after that I was like that for about I mean I was still manic for about 3 weeks.
0: But then we agreed his mother would leave if he ta- if he took the meds that the the ER had given him, which was Alonza Pien, so he can go to sleep. So he agreed to do that. And then he also agreed to see a psychiatrist and a therapist. So we made appointments, and then his mother left. And so it was just me and him. And we went to see a therapist that which he hated. I hated,
2: so he didn't go back.
0: He didn't go back. She was really young, and he just felt like she was like a nurse or
2: she just sat down in front of me taking notes on a notepad and i just felt so far away from her like i I didn't feel like she could help me at all so i didn't Mm -hmm. go back
0: and so i've been blessed with a great therapist and i went to my session and i had a breakdown when i told him i don't know what to do his meds are gonna run out in a couple days and he hasn't picked a psychiatrist he hasn't seen a therapist i i'm really losing it and then he said, bring him t- tomorrow, and I'll talk to him. And Hayden sat down with my therapist and me, and they had a conversation, and I don't know what it was. I think this, you know, my therapist is just great. He's he's really connected. They really connected. And then Hayden agreed that he would see the psychiatrist the next day.
1: And Did you? I did, yeah. And, well, and how, did, how did that the go? The
0: psychiatrist is... We are, honestly, I've heard horror stories about psychiatrists. I don't understand how we've been so blessed. He is just the greatest, most compassionate, most just friendly and understanding and... He really was genuinely interested in knowing what happened.
1: You have to you have to give his name because I love to give shout outs when it's a good therapist or psychiatrist if you're comfortable doing that.
0: Doctor Ashraf, I forgot his
1: name. <laughs> like,
2: Ashraf.
0: We call him Doctor Ash. <laughs>
2: <laughs> My and Body Wellness Center in Brooklyn. There yes, you go. Uh, that's enough. That's that's yes. the that's Doctor Ash,
0: um, and. He started asking him questions that I think that's when Hayden realized.
2: realized I was bipolar. One, I mean, every single question that he asked, I was like, Yep, yeah. do you spend a lot of things in things you don't need? Uh, yeah, are you irritable? Yeah, are you angry at things for no reason? Yeah, you can't, did you sleep? max out your yeah. credit
0: cards? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that you, like th- things like that that I never thought there were symptoms of what he had and Haydn was just like yes yes and he's like okay I have I have the right combination
2: so he gave me that time he gave Abilify. me Abilify Lamectal and this other An allergy, allergy medicine. medicine, and that completely backfired. I mean, in my life, I've never experienced once any allergy to anything, but that week that I was under that medicine, I was allergic to absolutely everything that a human being could be allergic to. Oh my god! <laughs> and I couldn't sleep. That would wake me up even more. And the the purpose of that drug was to make me sleep, but I would actually be more awake with that with that medicine. And, and that's when we, we actually had gone down to Miami for Christmas. And for that week, I was a raging alcoholic because the only way I could fall, fall asleep was through alcohol. And was he was on way. the
0: meds and drinking. So the second we came back, and he got claustrophobic in the meantime, so the, the ride back on the plane was horrifying. But the second we got back, we went to see Dr. Ash immediately, and he added Seroquel
1: and that changed
0: and that was a blessing
1: (laughs) and that was the cocktail
2: that worked yeah
0: except that for a while he was blank i mean
2: yeah it was it was seroquel is a tough uh, medicine that just completely be kind of sedating knocks the lights out of you yeah it completely sedates you it completely makes you blank minded you can't really bring thoughts about your memories actually start going away that was I think one of the times that I started even thinking like is that
1: everybody or just you on Seroquel
2: I don't know I think think it might be just me that's okay. something I couldn't ask. This is
1: an important either. thing I like to distinguish because I hate to right. scare people off. No, uh, no. I mean, Seroquel saved to... my life. I mean, okay. it,
2: if it hadn't been for Seroquel, I would still be manic, probably. I mean, it's just it's just the bad paranoid. side of paranoia.
0: So he was yeah. manic and paranoid. So Seroquel was supposed to take the paranoia away and help him sleep. Right. And it did just that. Yeah. But then you would see him and he was just blank for such a long period. I think... After such a high mania, it's just you are gonna crash, yeah. and he crashed really hard. And I think that's, I think some of your guests have said this in the past. Like nobody tells you that you're gonna crash mm-hmm. really badly, and he did. How
1: did you know what was the crashing and what was the seroquel? Which one was leaving you? I think it was just
2: the emotional side of depression. I, I had never felt so deeply sad I mean I was in a hole I was suicidal I I thought of like you know like I never attempted committing suicide but I did think of like you know maybe it's just better to die I would sit by my window looking out having a cigarette and it was just like this deep sadness of everything and I couldn't find a future I couldn't find a past I couldn't really think of anything that would make me again smile uh, the only thing I kept thinking is how much I hurt people through my mania. So what what got you then out of that trough? I think it was therapy. <laughs> and therapy. Because I was in Cereco for a long time, um, but therapy really helped me, uh, like sort of understanding what had gone on, understanding that it was my illness, understanding that hopefully that was a temporary thing, the depression, Um then I, uh, you know, like just trying to like figure out what the future was. And I think once I saw like the, the path to something better in future days, I, I kind of got out of that depression, that, that deep depression. I still was depressed for months. I would say I was deeply depressed for six months. Yeah. Yeah.
0: The first two were brutal, though.
2: Yeah, I was just, I couldn't hold a job. I, I had to quit both my jobs. I was just like so deeply anxious about everything. I, might, I had a pain in my chest the whole 24 hours a day. Um,
0: you cried a lot. I
2: cried a lot. Rama would come home and I would just cry to her tell her I couldn't deal with anything. Everything just affected me so badly. I couldn't put pieces together of anything. I couldn't play guitar. I couldn't. I couldn't even watch TV. It was something I couldn't even, like, I couldn't use my mind for anything, you know.
0: And I think that was the scary part because I, in my head, then it was okay, so it's either this or that.
1: He's either manic or he's depressed.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's no middle ground. And, you know, I went up there with his mania and I went down there with his depression. And,.
1: You do you know, get frequent do you get frequent flyer miles? Yeah. For that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay.
0: And I suffer from depression myself, so I would try to tell him like I know exactly how you feel. Like I can't help you when you're a manic because I don't know what that feels like. But here I know I know how you feel and and you can lean on me and I have some things that I do that help me cope and I was trying to share that with him constantly.
1: And did it help? Yeah, it did. It was receptive. Yeah. What were some of the things you shared that helped you?
0: I told you, I told you to write. I told you to listen to music. I told you to get out of the house, but it was freezing outside.
2: Yeah, it was just that so was unfortunate that too. my deepest depression came on during winter, during the oh. deepest part of winter. So <laughs> stepping out was really like stepping out into my feelings, you know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, but I told him to just try and keep himself busy, even if he doesn't know how to pick up the guitar to just pick it up, see what he can do.
2: I was so afraid of falling back into my rituals, also that was a new obsession that I had. It was like I wanna not be obsessive compulsive ever again, so everything that I knew I had a ritual, I was so afraid of being able, of falling back into it, so I wouldn't even pick up a guitar out of, out of that fear
0: and then he Picked up the guitar, and then he started writing. And he, one of the greatest songs, like, one of the best stuff that he's written, he's written during this period, actually, of recovery, um, wrote a lot of music, actually.
2: Yeah, and then I started writing a lot of music during that time. Uh, depression really pushed me creatively a lot. I was able to create music. Uh, that was the one thing I cling on to during that time because everything else scared me but once I got over the fear of like my rituals I was just writing music playing guitar all day pretty much
0: and I really just encouraged him to open up in therapy you know to be honest as honest as he could possibly be and we were going to therapy together because it's what our in in addition to individual in addition to individual therapy we were going together because we needed to relearn who we are Um, As a couple. As a couple and as people because everything changes now, you know. We have to learn this different side of each other. And it's been a crazy roller coaster, an insane journey. And I never thought I would get here. Like, I never in the slightest thought that... I was going to be able to sit with him and have this conversation very openly and pinpoint what was right and what was wrong and have him be so, you know, stable, you know, without any mood swings, you know, without going up and down. And now that he's here, thanks to the meds and the therapy, I just, the worst is past, you yeah. know? And I think that's what it is. I think, like, Sometimes when you say you're bipolar, people might think that you're a ticking bomb, you know. But he was a ticking bomb before.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We knew what he had. And now he knows himself better than ever.
1: So many so many mental illnesses and addictions can be managed. So If, if we're willing to surrender to the process of managing Absolutely. them. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: yeah. And I think it took a while for him to surrender because he had a big issue with meds.
2: Yeah,
0: didn't want to take the meds. But he I mean, took I was just anyways.
2: also like one of my obsessions was like I was in a drug for so long. I don't want drugs to fix me,
1: mm-hmm.
2: but you know, it was the but, only way. Really, I mean, it's a chemical imbalance. It's just the science is there. Yeah. You can't deny it. You know,
1: there's a difference between taking a, a drug to improve your chemical balance to bring you to normal and taking a drug to right. escape reality. Yeah, you know, I like to say that meds help you be on an even keel with reality and uh, you know recreational drugs abusing recreational drugs is a way of running away from from reality
0: absolutely and I think once he started performing without having to be high once he was he had like a five-day show of like his theater piece that went up in a um, theater festival in New York the fringe And he did such a great job, you know, and he was totally sober, you know, that was, that was him. And I think it was, he just needed that to just know that he could do everything that he wants to do. He can, he can succeed, you know, artistically without having to be stoned or without, you know, just Mm -hmm. being himself, really being stable, emotionally stable. And I think that's what he was worried that, without the mania, he wouldn't be able mm-hmm. to do that,
2: yeah, yeah, and I still miss it. I mean, the mania is still something that I like you know miss deeply. It's like uh it's like a drug that will never be compared to anything that you could take, um, but it's like, yeah, it's realizing like what you- what you were saying, like the, being aligned with reality and things that are sustainable, and this is sustainable, you know being being stable. So, yeah, it's realizing, uh, like, overcoming, uh, like what Rama was saying, the biggest fear I had to overcome was realizing that I could be myself without the mania, and I could do the things that I loved without the mania, and I could be productive without the mania.
1: And I think, you know, I'm here. And then you also, right. you don't have to deal with the bout of depression after the mania is over. Right. You know, if you don't have those high highs, you don't have to experience the low the lows when they leave, because they right. do... De- I'm, from what I understand about uh, bipolar is there will be, if there's a mountain, there's going to be a, right. we'll go a, a to deep come down. valley yeah. afterwards. Yeah. Um,
0: One thing that I, I don't think we touched upon that I do want to say is I give a lot of credit to his parents because there's such a stigma behind mental illness still, especially in, you know, different communities, but um, I would say maybe in a Hispanic community, maybe in within minority communities, um, there's a stigma attached to mental illness. And I think that his parents are just the most amazing people because the second they realized what it was, they went ahead and they educated themselves about it. His mother read everything there is to read, found out about every artist that is bipolar, um, started seeing a therapist, um, just started watching videos and documentaries about it, and they have been such a great support to him.
1: That's so beautiful.
0: And a great support to me. So every time they would call to check in, They'll call and check in and be like, "How is are you doing? Oh, okay. How are you doing? How's everything? What's that you? feel like? Because
1: I know you came from an incredibly abandoning, emotionally abandoning environment.
0: It was just, it was amazing. I mean, to know that I was in their minds, and his mother constantly telling me, I don't, don't, I don't want you to ever forget that I know what you're going through and I'm so thankful That you are standing by him, and being there for him, just know that I am incredibly thankful, and eternal gratitude, you know, from my side and from my, you know, from his dad's side, and and that's just, you know, when we were coming actually back this last time we're coming from Miami, from his birthday, one thing that she said was. You had to go through all this without uh, without relying on anybody. I can un- I don't understand. I don't know how you did it because yes, I I understand we were there for you, but we are not your your parents, you know, and the fact that you couldn't, you know, call up your mom and be like I am struggling. I'm struggling with this. This is very painful and I don't know how to deal with it. I think when she said that, I really, like, I had a little breakdown (laughs) because um, she's, she's been thinking about me all this time, about how I'm doing, you know, not just about him, but really, is everything okay with me? Yeah. And I'm really incredibly grateful. Big shout out to our friend, Jen, who's been by my side and has been able to really help me through all this. And she called every day she saw me every day she asked every day how i was doing i loaded so much on her and i'm really incredibly grateful for that because it's it's hard
1: it is hard
0: it's hard and i i think hayden is an amazing person because i had to rely on him so much he was my rock for so many years so many years and i i don't know how he did it Honestly, because I'm a basket case. We talked about this. But <laughs> that he had to carry me for so long. And this was the time for me to be there for him. There was yeah. no way I was going to leave him at this point. I was going to stand by him side. I imagine a side. lot
1: of ways it brought you guys closer together.
0: Yes, yeah. in many ways. I think so. Yeah. Get to know each other. at just... this. I think
2: it's, it was like sort of I told her once after uh, when i was medicated on the right medications i told her one time it was like oh it's like we're going out again for the first time because it felt like that it felt like it was like you know getting to meet her all over again you know after the episode yeah well what a
1: beautiful note to uh to end on rama hayden thank you guys so much you've really um your stories have touched me your openness um meals we've shared since i've (laughs) I've been here um it's really been a big part of this this trip uh here and um just thank you thank Thank you you, thank you paul
0: and thank you for having this podcast
1: fuck off (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> many, many, many thanks to, uh, to Haydn and Rama And uh, Rama's episode uh, should be going up next week So uh, hopefully you will enjoy uh, that interview as much as, uh, as I did Before I take it out with some surveys I want to remind you guys There's a couple of different ways to support the podcast If you feel so inclined You can go to our website, mentalpod.com And make either a one-time PayPal donation Or my favorite, a recurring monthly donation starting for as little as five bucks a month. Super easy to fill out and uh, means the world to me. It really helps keep the podcast um, going. You can also uh, support us by using our Amazon search portal. If you're gonna buy something at Amazon, enter through our search box and then if you buy something, Amazon will give us a couple of nickels, doesn't cost you anything and uh, that that also helps. Um, you can also buy a coffee mug or a t-shirt. Um, or as I like to say, you can uh, stick your thumb up your ass and go fuck yourself. What's with the sassy language tonight, Paul? I don't know. Ivy had five teeth pulled this week. I felt so sorry for her. It's amazing, though. You know, dogs can have like the the go through so much physical pain, and it doesn't seem they can still be so happy. It's just, it's amazing. It's amazing. Um, Herbert is good, gaining weight. Uh, Carla and I are, we haven't picked out a piano case for him to be buried in yet, but, um, we're pretty sure it's going to either have to be a baby grand or, or a grand. He, he will get fed and within 20 minutes of being fed, he wants to be fed again. And then he wants a treat and, uh, and we fall for it and we feed him just to shut him up, which I'm pretty sure is not in any book on how to raise a dog. Let's get to some surveys. This is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself C. And about her PTSD, uh, she writes, Being deprived a night's sleep is much more restful than having sex dreams about your dad. Snapshot from her life, uh, having a severe psoriasis flare-up and having to put on a bra despite it being uncomfortable because my breasts were covered with scales so my dad wouldn't leer at me. Oh, man. Any parents that listen, if you are sexually attracted to your child, at least fucking hide it. <laughs> they can pick up on it. It is just, that is a prison for a child. That is a prison to have a leering parent. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by, uh, do you like how I started off the, uh, the surveys nice and upbeat? <laughs> this is an awfulsome moment. Um, filled out by a woman who calls herself a pseudonym. She writes, A few months into therapy, my doc was still trying to crack my shell and get me to be vulnerable with him. I had done it a few times before, cried in everything, but I still felt intense shame about crying in front of someone. Anyway, a good portion of our work together is about me finding a career path I truly love. I remember my therapist asked me, So where do you see yourself at 26? It was a pretty innocuous question, but suddenly... I became overwhelmed with emotion and let out my first true uninhibited sob and managed to choke out. I never thought I'd make it that far. While this may seem like just an awful moment from the outside, I finally got out one of my deepest fears, something I didn't even consciously know I was afraid of. Being seen in that moment was so freeing. Good for you, man. God, it's... It is so freeing when we choke those things out in therapy. That that is like gold. That is like gold. Um, This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Ukulele Baby and about her depression. She writes, dysthymia with episodes of major depression. Waking up in the morning like this isn't fair. Why do I have to do this again? Oh my God, do I relate to that? Oh no, I woke up again. Oh, the fall depression is just, just rolling in. Uh, it is like you know when my fall depression comes in and takes over for my summer depression. It's like Elvis crashing karaoke. It's like, oh, really? You think you know how to entertain? Watch this. But you know one of the one of the things that I've I've learned how to do bit by bit in these last 15 or so years is to try to figure out what do I have control over and what don't I have control over and let go what I don't have control over and surrender to it and one of the things I don't have control over is my depression i there's things that i can do to try to help it you know exercise eat right talk therapy support groups meds etc cetera, etc cetera. But when I'm still doing all of those things and the sun goes down at 4.30 and I feel like this deep emptiness come over me, I go to bed and one of the ways I surrender is I don't judge myself for going to bed. For the most part, I don't judge myself. So if you're out there and you're struggling and you're judging yourself for trying to cope with your mental illness, you know, that's like somebody with a broken leg going, oh, look at how I fucking hobble. Look at how I hobble be good to yourself that's what i'm telling you now i'm paranoid that i'm coming across as condescending this was filled out by josiah and about uh his uh, being autistic and having schizoid personality disorder he writes i've never had a one-on-one conversation that lasted more than half an hour my standard emotional state is best described as beige wow that is that is a hall of fame description. Standard emotional state is beige. I relate. And then a snapshot from his his life. He writes, I am a friendless, factless person. I don't even know what feckless means person uh, working a menial job and living with my mom. I have not vacationed outside of Kansas in the last decade. I've never traveled outside of the U.S. and I do not suffer from any innate physical health issues. I've never suffered bigotry. I've never been abused. I have no memories worth recalling that are heartening or distressing. I have no stories to tell. I am only a human being by technical definition. And you are being way too fucking hard on yourself. Dude, You have autism and schizoid personality disorder, and you're like, oh yeah, but I don't have any innate physical issues. Dude, those are that is that is a heapin helpin of stuff to deal with. So give yourself give yourself a break, said the pot to the kettle. Uh, This guy calls himself Pip This Motherfucker um, about his depression. Envying the freedom of a homeless man sleeping on the train. I've done that. Anxiety. Wishing my brain came with a dismiss button. Love addiction. I don't need to respect myself as long as I have her next to me. Uh, About uh, having sexual bias, he writes. He's not into sports, so he must be gay, right? And then about uh, racial or cultural bias, uh, I think he's saying that he feels that he is uh, receiving racial or cultural bias. He says, why does a new generation of white men need to be constantly reminded of the mistakes of their ancestors? And you know, when I read that, the thought that popped into my mind is, I don't think that that gets brought up for... I don't think people bring that up to try to make us white guys feel guilty about what our ancestors did. I think they do that to never let us forget that we're starting out a foot race 10 yards ahead. And that is something that that we shouldn't ever forget. And if you think that racism uh, isn't an issue um, anymore in our country or in the world, um, fuck off. I don't really know what else to say to that, but um, yeah, I, I hope that got my, my my brain just went as my dad said. My brain just went to screensaver. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Claire. She writes, "Oh, I love this one. It's heartbreaking, but also beautiful." She writes, "When I was 21, my mum passed away from cancer. Can I just say how much I love when you guys call your moms your mum? And I know you're you're you've got either got to be from." uh Great Britain, New Zealand or Australia. Basically what I'm saying is you're not from Canada or the United States. Uh when I was 21, my mom I'm hating myself right now, feeling like I'm I'm just going off the rails and uh my thoughts aren't coherent and I'm commenting too much and uh I am having a perfectionist angst moment. When I was 21, my mom passed away from cancer she'd been fighting for five years. A few days later, my sisters and I were back at home together. It was our homely, comfortable place. Homely? I guess that's can mean something other than ugly. Or maybe it does mean ugly. Oh my God, Paul, shut the fuck up. It was our homely, comfortable place where you feel most at ease and know you belong. It now felt different. Something was missing and the protection of those four walls didn't feel as strong as they once did uh, as a kid being tucked into bed every night. Looking around at my mom's belongings, I soon found three purposefully placed patterned boxes on the floor of her neat and tidy walk-in wardrobe. One box had my name on it and the other is my sister's, all with a gold permanent pen. Before even taking a peek, I called my sisters to come see. We all sat in the wardrobe, each opening our boxes. Knowing the organized, thoughtful, and practical mother I had, I saw a small stack of worn papers inside the box and quickly came to the conclusion that these were my important documents. I would now need to keep these in a safe place in my own house. mum wasn't there to look after me or my important documents anymore. I also saw some little treasures, trinkets, jewelry, jewelry boxes, and handwritten notes. But the one thing I noticed first, immediately, overwhelmed me and brought me to tears. It was a tiny screwdriver sitting daintily atop the pile of papers and mementos. My mom and I both had to wear glasses from the age of 12. A small thing, yes, but the almost identical experiences we had as badly sighted kids being unable to see the blackboard and street signs, and then the amazement at seeing leaves on trees and puffs in clouds once fitted with our glasses, was a unique understanding we bonded over. That tiny screwdriver tightened the screws on the glasses I was wearing, and Mum knew I would need it. In a split second, that small gesture told me how loved and cared for I was and also that she was gone. Yes, I would have to look after myself now, but mostly I just felt so lucky to have had such an amazing mom for 21 years. Oh, that is so beautiful. Probably should have ended with that one. This is uh, from the What Has Helped You survey filled out by a woman who calls herself podcast listener. How did you come up with that name? Issues. Uh, I suffer with anxiety and depression. I still need to get help. Actually, how I feel is self-diagnosed. I've been struggling silently for years. What helps you deal? Uh, Recently, uh, cutting out the contact with a poisonous person in my life. Also, getting rid of things I don't like anymore, i.e. old TV show sets, music I don't listen to. What things have people said or done that have helped you? That my feelings and experiences are valid, and I worry about that a lot. Man, I don't know if we ever completely stop worrying that our emotions are valid. I, I don't think I do. I, I think we move in the right direction, but it is it is definitely a, a slow process. Same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Grimmy. Her issues are anxiety and low self-esteem. Uh, what's helped you deal with them? Cutting toxic bill very much like the previous one, cutting toxic people out of my life, surrounding myself with family and friends who love and support me. I also love taking long baths, lighting candles, and using makeup. What have people said or done that has helped you? Uh, I have some very supportive friends who have really encouraged me to go out and socialize more, inviting me to go for drinks and watch bands. They've also been very understanding when I have felt too anxious to see them or if I have had to go home early. They have helped me feel less embarrassed Uh, by my crying episodes. That sounds like you have some good friends. That is awesome, man. There's nothing like a good support network. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Squid Pro Quo. Um, And then in parentheses, formerly known as Lumbricus Terrestris, uh, but this is easier to pronounce. I do think I remember reading something by Lumbricus Terrestris. Uh, He is... Bisexual in his 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused, never been physically abused, but he has been emotionally abused. He writes, At age 28, this is the first time I've been able to admit to myself and others how fucked up my childhood has been. I couldn't see it at the time because my family worked so hard to maintain the illusion that we were normal, loving, and healthy. My parents told my sister and I they loved us. They provided us with food and shelter, checked that our homework was done, and drove us to piano lessons. But there was no warmth at all. I was never hugged or touched in a loving way. We never talked about anything of significance. Expressing, and expressing negative emotions like anger or depression was not allowed. My parents never showed interest in who I was. They only saw my accomplishments. If I got good grades and won awards, that was proof enough that they were doing a good job. A few examples. My mother died when I was six years old after a long decline in her health. In the space of about two years, she had a heart transplant, became bedridden with a permanent IV, and then was hospitalized far away a few months before her death. When I got the news that she had passed passed away, uh, and in parentheses, just a sentence or two from my father, I spent the afternoon hidden in my bed, and after that, I declared myself quote, over it. That was... The only time I ever spoke with an adult about my mother's death. I never talked to a therapist, a relative, a teacher, or anyone else about it and they did not reach out to me either. The most perverse thing about it is that I never even knew why my mother was sick. I didn't find out until I was 26 when I saw a Facebook post from my uncle on the 20th anniversary of her death. It was diabetes. My father remarried a year later and all photos or reminders of my mother disappeared. We even stopped seeing relatives on my mother's side of the family. My father worked for the rest of my childhood in a town a 100 miles away, only coming home on the weekends, which he mostly spent in front of the TV. Sometimes we would spend time together, but it was never authentic. Instead of talking openly with each other, our interaction was mostly him praising me for things and me responding uncomfortably. When we went golfing together, I would try to hit deliberately bad shots just to see how bad I would have to be before he would stop the false praise and start being honest with me. In my seventh grade school pictures, I looked so angry with the world because I was. When I brought them home to my stepmother, I got a long lecture about how that person is not me. We were going to have to get retakes, and she wasn't happy about that. You're not angry with the world. This person is angry with the world, she said, as she showed me a pictured picture of a troubled boy she taught in first grade. The thing is, I remember deliberately trying to smile when the pictures were taken. I think I was just physically incapable of it. I went to see a counselor in ninth grade when I became very depressed. She met separately with me and then with my parents and gave me a diagnose, diagnosis of Asperger's syndrome. I argued at the time why I didn't think that was accurate, but no one would listen to me. They latched onto that diagnosis because it was a convenient reason why I never connected with my parents, and it completely absolved them of any blame or responsibility. My dad asked the counselor whether they could have caused my, quote, Asperger, whether they could have caused my Asperger's syndrome. Um, oh, yeah, it's in quotes because he doesn't believe he has Asperger's syndrome. Uh, and she told him that it was probably innate. And his response was, oh, thank God. Uh, any positive experiences uh, with them. There are plenty of positive experiences, but I can't remember any moments of warmth or vulnerability between me and my father and stepmother. The difficult thing is that I can't entirely blame them because they were both deeply wounded people themselves and they did not have the capacity to love. They could only go through the motions. And you know, my thought as I read this is the only thing that we can really do about this because yes, there's. I think there's a certain amount of time that we have to mourn what we didn't get in childhood, and then we have to go about, and I hate this phrase, but parenting ourselves and building a support network of people who do feel like family, who we can be vulnerable around. And that's why I always champion support groups because, you know, if I was still in contact with my mom, waiting for her to see the real me and to treat me with boundaries... Uh, I'd, uh, I'd be a very, very frustrated person. Turkish thoughts. Spending most of your childhood in an emotional vacuum with no close relationships with parents, relatives, or even friends will really fuck up the way you relate to others. I get really anxious if I don't know where I stand with people. I worry that people only talk to me because it's expected of them. I reject people before they have a chance to reject me, or I do the polar opposite and get way too attached to people too quickly. Uh, Darkest Secrets, there's not too much to mention that I haven't already. Sexual fantasy is most popular. (laughs) Most popular? (laughs) Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Uh, I want to date a couple, and I've been trying to make that happen. There's something about being with two people who are really into each other that is very appealing to me. I have no idea if this desire is some subconscious way of replacing the loving parents I lacked, but I don't worry too much about that. I don't feel any shame about this. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To my father, I want to tell him that he is a coward. I wish he could engage with the world. I want to tell him that I had an awful childhood. Both he and my mother still believe that nothing is wrong with our family. To my sister, I want to tell her that our parents let us down. She has had more difficulties than I have, and I want her to know that it's not her fault. What, if anything, do you wish for? I want to be loved by someone who knows me or to be known by someone who loves me. So far, I've only been able to get one or the other. How does it feel after writing these things down? It feels good to admit to myself and to others just how bad things were. Well, you know, I think that's got to be—I think that's got to be, be the beginning. Um, anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Forgive yourself. We are all products of our experiences. I also want to recommend the book *The Emotionally Absent Mother* by Jasmine Lee Corey. It's mostly focused on mothers, but I mentally substitute the word father when it's appropriate. Thank you for that. This is from the What Has Helped You survey, and this is filled up by... Filled up. Maybe I should just go to bed. Herbert, Ivy, you guys ready to call it a night? This is filled up by a woman who calls herself yoga pants, please. And her issues are depression and anxiety and uh what have people said or done that has helped you and she writes one friend said i'm so sorry and i love you so much i've never experienced depression so i don't know what to say but i don't want to sound like an asshole. so if you have anything to share with me that i could say to you i would love to hear it i want you to know that i'm here for you and want to help wow that is so perfect um Continuing, honestly, it's so simple, but occasional text as, uh, asking how I'm feeling are so refreshing. It's a good opener, but also, if I don't want to talk about it, I can choose how to respond. Just to know that I was on someone's mind feels good. In addition to the creativity, uh, the authors I love, uh, Glennon Doyle, Melton, Anne Lamont, Elizabeth Gilbert, Brene Brown, Uh, keep emphasizing a laugh at yourself find yourself amusing find joy in yourself forgive yourself a hundred times a day let yourself off the hook get out into the fresh air for a sensitive people sitting and thinking is the kiss of death come on get up get out call a friend and ask them how they're doing don't start with how you are i've been asked this a lot but it's something i continually struggle with if your friend did blank would you judge them the same way you're judging yourself the answer is always no, of course not. I tell them I love them. They're great. They're just having a hard time, but it's not acceptable when I do it. So sometimes I'm able to shut myself up with the, if you're friend, blah, blah, blah talk. It doesn't always cheer me up, but at least it shuts up the shitty thoughts and helps to clear up my head a bit. Thank you for that. Uh, this is from uh, the same survey. This was filled out by a woman who calls herself ak Forty Seven. And uh, her issues are depression and anxiety. And uh, by the way, I think if you buy depression, uh, you can get anxiety at a discount. I almost always see them together. May have been the dumbest joke I've ever done. That's not true. There are a thousand other jokes I've done that are dumber than that. What have people said or done uh, that has helped you? My best friend and roommate at the time had been struggling to handle my depressive episodes and panic attacks. One night when I had forgotten, when I had gotten especially worked up, I was absolutely losing it more than ever before. I couldn't stop crying or shaking and couldn't stand still. He grabbed me by the shoulders firmly, but caringly and told me to close my eyes. I tried to, even though I was in a mess. He said, okay, so we're gonna breathe, okay? We'll start for three seconds and then four and up to 20 and then we'll go back down. He counted in for three, out for three, in for four, out for four and so on. It's such an easy concept that I had heard before, but when you're in panic, you can rarely pull it out off yourself um, or you can rarely pull yourself out of it. My friend had studied Kung Fu for years and this was a basic practice they did to get in tune with her bodies before practice. This moment was so important because he was doing something so little, but it helped so incredibly. It was a voice I felt comfortable with. Plus, he did the breathing with me and didn't stop holding me. It felt good to feel connected rather than instructed. Now, anytime I feel worked up, I can return to that moment. Even if no one is around, I feel connected and grounded as well as in control through something as simple as breathing. Wow, that's, that is awesome. Thank you for that. This is a shame and secret survey, and this was filled out by a guy who calls himself uh, Dead Alien. He is uh, straight, uh, maybe bi curious, in his 40s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, my mother thought nothing of prancing from the bathroom to the bedroom but naked, and she would sometimes wear very sheer pajamas. I mean, who knows? It was the 70s. Uh, that's, it's no excuse. Uh, ever been physically or emotionally abused? Uh, he's been both. Uh, my mother was a single parent and very emotionally and psychologically vile, volatile. She had a diagnosis of bipolar, um, manic depression back then, but the only thing available for it was lithium, so I'm not sure it helped. She would also, uh, she also used to wail her suicide fantasies at me and cry on my shoulder when her string of boyfriends didn't work out. At this point, maybe I should mention that she would beat the shit out of me with hairbrushes and wooden spoons whenever I displeased her. I would have to lock myself in the bathroom to get away from her. I remember shrinking in horror as she would beat on the door and try to jimmy the lock on the other side. I'm sure if this happened today, I would have been taken by uh, CPS. I became an awkward, reclusive child who shit in the bathtub and escaped through books. My mom wouldn't allow a television in the house. Not sure why even now any positive experiences with your mom. Interestingly enough, my mom turned out to be a decent person and admits today that she was a bad mother. She is also an excellent grandmother to my two young daughters. Darkest thoughts. I have a shit job with the federal government and work in a huge, soulless office building from hell in downtown Kansas City. Let me tell you, the stereotype of federal workers is true. Stupid, rude, and insufferable. It hurts me to think that more often than not, I fit right in, but I am routinely contempt, contemptuous of rules. I hate my job and it makes me hate my life. Sitting at my desk, I wish a one megaton nuke would go off and vaporize, uh, the whole sorry lot of them, including me. That or just a large passenger, uh, jet would fly into the building, but that would be unoriginal. I honestly wouldn't care if I lived through that or not. Darkest Secrets. The details are a little blurry because I was drunk, but the morning after is still clear. When I was in my 20s, I met and partied with a girl I met at a Jazz in the Park festival near my condo. We were both pretty trashed, but continued drinking at bars and eventually back at my place. I made my move, and we had sloppy, drunken sex on my living room floor. Somehow, we made it to my bedroom and passed out. I was pleased. I really liked this girl and wanted to see her again. But the next morning, we got up. She wouldn't talk to me. Instead, she just got dressed and started to leave. I asked her if she wanted my phone number uh, at the very least. Not really, she said, nearly bursting into tears. I was taken aback, but let her go. I really didn't know what to think. I'm in my 40s now and realize what a dumb shit I had been. This had been a date rape in her mind, but in mine it was quite consensual and enjoyable. I now know why rape cases are so difficult to litigate. There are literally two different points of view with both sides uh, certain that theirs is right. I wish I could even remember her name and try to make things right with her. Um, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Watching ex-girlfriends fuck other guys, especially if I had jealousy issues with that girlfriend. Um, pause for one second. It um, it gets even hotter if I pick out the guy she is to get it on with. Uh, this is where my bi-curiosity comes in. I've never been near another man before, but if it was the right type of guy, long hair, tan skin, well-proportioned, but not necessarily perfect. I would definitely consider experimenting in this case, especially after, after he just fucked my girlfriend. Yummy. Have you shared these things with others? Nope. This is the first time I've ever mentioned any of this. Not even my wife knows some of this stuff. How do you feel after writing these things down? Good. I'm a newbie listener to the podcast, but I've already gone through 25 to 30 episodes. I love it, and I'm glad I found it. Um, and then any... Uh, suggestions to make the podcast better see if you can find more bipolar uh slash alcoholic slash love addicted sex addicted people um i highly encourage you um to go to go talk to a therapist um because there's it sounds like you got a lot weighing on you both both past and and present and um you know, a lot of it is in is in uh, a gray area, and um, I think that's what that's where therapists are really, really good. I mean, they're good for everything, but um, the gray area stuff, I think, is the stuff that can just really take us out of take us out of uh, being present in the moment. Can really, really drag us down. I'd like to say really one more time, really. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself permanent hiccups. Um, she writes, I had a boyfriend in college that had cystic fibrosis. He was hospitalized every few months for lung infections. He also drank heavily and did cocaine and other drugs. One night soon after we started dating, I decided to do ecstasy and had just taken the pill when I got a call from my boyfriend. He told me he was sick and needed me to take him to the emergency room so he could be hospitalized for a lung infection. The ecstasy hadn't kicked in yet, so I took him there. I didn't tell him I'd taken anything, hoping I could hold it together and act socially appropriate. As we sat there in the emergency waiting area, I started to roll as I desperately tried to cover it up. I've never felt such a discord in what I felt versus how I knew I should act. I alternated between trying to console him and be appropriately serious and grave and compassionate and just fucking feeling amazing as the drug gave me waves of intense pleasure. It felt like I was at a funeral having multiple orgasms. That might be Hall of Fame. Might be Hall of Fame. And then finally, this is a happy moment. And you know, I don't usually read too many. um, Just shut up and read it. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Hala Hala and holla or halla anyway she writes my two-month-old son had fallen asleep on my chest in the early morning hours he was angled in the crook of my arm so i could see his face at one point he opened up his eyes smiled at me then wiggled his butt adjusting his body into me and then closed his eyes and went immediately back to sleep my heart nearly burst from happiness and the knowledge that my sheer presence brings such comfort to my little boy Similarly, shortly after my older son had learned how to walk, he and I would play a game at home or at the park where he would go as far away from me as he could, for example, to the end of a long hallway or field, and I would scream run and he would run towards me as fast as his little toddler legs would go and leap flying into my arms and we'd fall over laughing. We'd do that over and over again until he decided he was done. I've never tired of it. Every time he flew into my arms, I felt like everything was right with the world and everything would be okay. Now, unfortunately, he is too much too old for such silliness at two and a half. But I will always have those memories. Now, That's weird because two and a half doesn't seem uh, too old for that. But then again, I don't have kids, so I don't know. But that—that's a beautiful moment. And uh, I guess what I was going to say beforehand is, uh, beforehand is um, a lot of people that fill the the happy moments out are about their children or their their dogs and um, I feel like that that gets a little too repetitive sometimes, but there's just something about the way she described that that I was like, I I have to read that. I have to read that one. And you know what, maybe because I don't have kids, there's a little part of me that doesn't want to know the extreme joy that parents can have with their kids because then I'm reminded that I'm missing out on this huge part of life. But it does make me happy to know that kids, kids are, are, are in the care of parents that see them and feel them and hear them and, uh, and provide safety for them. Oh, I'm so in my head right now. I don't think I can let you go right now. I think you got to stay here and hold my hand and get me through the end of the show. I'm kind of half kidding. I don't know. This this insecurity came over me uh, when I flicked the microphone on and started recording tonight. I went to to my support group before I came here and was feeling so completely at peace. And uh, all of a sudden, I'm just feeling a little uh, out of sorts. But you know what? I think I can bid you adieu. I think I will be okay. I think I can. I think I can take it from here. I think I can manage to get to the recliner and hit the button that brings up Netflix. I can do it. I have it in me. If you're out there and you're struggling, you are so not alone. So so not alone. So many of us are know know exactly what you're feeling. You know, our circumstances may not be identical, but what we feel inside is so so universal, and you don't have to go through it by yourself. It's no fun going through it by yourself. Anyway. I hope you liked tonight's episode. I did. And uh, thanks for listening.
0: Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.